0: because uh, we're leaving for Spain tomorrow morning and I don't want to stay up late editing this. So I'm going to try to be efficient because there's a lot to talk about and uh, efficiency is not my strong suit when it comes to these podcasts. But I'll just get right into it. So we're going to Spain tomorrow. We booked this trip uh, before they got rid of all the testing requirements. So I told Heather, I'll do it because our friends are renting a house in Mallorca, the island uh, in the Mediterranean. And I said, we'll do it, but we have to drive. I'm not sticking stuff up my nose and dealing with all that bullshit Uh, ever again, if I can help it. So she said, okay, we can drive. Uh, So we're driving to like all these different cities, Seville, Cuenca, Valencia. And in Valencia, you basically put your car on a ferry. It's like overnight and it takes you to Mallorca. And then we're staying in Mallorca for like four days. And then we're driving back through Spain to a bunch of different cities and it's 10 days and it's, it's going to be fun. uh, I think I haven't seen a lot of these places. These are like all these new cities I haven't been to, so it should be cool. But It's coming right when football is starting, so it's a bit crazy. It's why I've posted so much content of late. I'm still I've done all my drafts except the the big prime time, the $1,700 prime time, which is right when I get back. So I feel pretty good. I've I've gotten these drafts done and written up, and I can just contemplate what I've done. Which may be, what have I done? You know, I've I've basically got all the same players: five shares of Saquon Barkley in six leagues, five shares of Elijah Moore, four shares of travis Etienne. so if those guys don't do well it's going to be a tough season but i'm a, I, i'm not okay with that i'll be upset if that's the case but but it's the way i like to play i like to actually root for some definite outcome and not just have a generalized rooting for and against everybody last year i was a little bit more diversified than i would have liked but i had a great year because i had some key guys in the right places but hopefully this year i've uh gotten some things right we'll see anyway i've done that other thing that's going on is I got to get my driver's license here, which has been this like year and a half nightmare because of this bureaucracy and lack of clear communication. And then when my uh, rotowire wire com email address got yanked kind of suddenly by the new company, it wasn't malicious. They just, it was just a miscommunication. Then like all these like administrative places that I didn't even realize, like obviously I changed my email and all my banking and the stuff I know about, but I forgot like the Portuguese driver's license application was getting, you know, email sent to the wrong email. So finally, on the 9th of September, I'm going to hopefully get my Portuguese driver's license. But then we're getting maybe our Portuguese passport because we've been here almost six years. But I got to pass a language test. And my Portuguese is not great. It's okay. My, my biggest weakness is actually hearing, understanding what people are saying because they speak fast. The thing is, if you don't really understand what people are saying, then it's really hard to learn because you learn from other people speaking. I mean, kids learn language by their parents speaking to them and their teachers. And they learn by hearing other people. But if you don't understand the other people, then it's hard to learn. So I'm kind of cramming like crazy. I scheduled like seven lessons in the next week. We're going to take some Portuguese podcasts on this trip. Sasha and Heather speak well. So just, they just mock my Portuguese. I can, I can have a conversation. It's just that if a Portuguese person is speaking fast and I don't know what the topic is, I may be lucky to get a third to a half of what the hell they're saying. And apparently the test a friend of mine just took it. He said, and he's better than me. He said he didn't know what the fuck they were saying that they do it fast and with weird accents. So I got my language test on September 17th. So I'm cramming for that. I think I'll pass, but is what it is. I have my survivor and my uh, super contest things. I got to get those picks in, you know, before week one, my mom is coming for 10 days in mid September. We just met with the architect for these Portuguese houses that we're doing at his house, plied us with wine and uh, cooked us a nice meal at his place and showed us the new plans, which look really good. It's a bit much. I don't know what we're going to do when we're done. we we'll probably have to get rid of one of them or rent one out because it's not, we can't be in two places at once. Plus, Heather's like a psycho with the travels. We have these houses. She's even going to want to go to them. That's what concerns me. But I'll have to deal with that then. It's just, it's just a lot of stuff going on. You know, I'm unemployed. Thank God. My days are completely busy with Portuguese lessons and writing up these football drafts and stuff, but it's stuff I want to do. I don't really want to cram for Portuguese, although I do want to speak it now that I'm living here. I, I, it's ridiculous that I've been here this long and I don't speak. It's just that, you know, my family doesn't speak to me in Portuguese and all the Portuguese here, all the people under 50 speak English pretty well. So it's it's been tough and I'm just a bit lazy when it comes to that. Anyway, that's just the situation. Just a lot of different projects and things going on, a lot of different administrative stuff going on. But let's get into the, the more substantive things. So I've been reading a lot of different guys on my Twitter feed and just stuff I've thought about for a while. And there's this guy, Safe Dean, who's a, he's a Bitcoiner, and he wrote the book, he wrote a couple of books, but the Bitcoin Standard and the Fiat Standard. And he's always railing about how uh, climate change is a fraud. And I, I always thought a lot of these guys What they're saying has a lot of truth to it, but they exaggerate it for effect. So you get more attention if you say something absolute. If I say climate change is totally fake, it gets your attention and it's a less nuanced message. It's just a a clear communication. Even though people claim to want nuance, I think people want decisive, okay, I don't have to worry about this. Good. I can uh, think about something else. They don't want nuance. But there's one thing that I've taken from him and and a couple of other writers, um, there's this guy, Alex Epstein, who writes about climate and energy. And it, it occurred to me that I don't know, again, I've said before, like I don't see any evidence imminently in my life that I'm about to have ill health or my person, my body, my person, my experiences under uh, excess strain from the climate. You know, I've read some things that the coral reefs are now re-flourishing and doing better again, that the polar ice caps have, Actually, expanded in the last few years, and a bunch of things that, that haven't come out quite as predicted, and even in some cases, reversed. But again, there could be some hidden thing that I'm not aware of, and I'm, I certainly haven't looked into it deeply enough to say with any sort of certainty. The burden is on them now. As I said, after COVID, the burden is not on scientists' say, or the news media says that scientists say. So you're like two steps of hearsay removed, but that here's some evidence in my life that I can observe. I think I, it has to almost get to that point before I would take it seriously. And then the other thing that Saifuddin and some other people are pointing out is that, and this is just a fact that, you know, we have more debt in the world than GDP. You know, the, the, the money that is owed to the people of the world exceeds the amount of productive capacity that the world has. Basically, in sum, people are promised things that the leadership and the government and the, and the productive capacity of the world cannot deliver them. You are promised something that cannot be delivered. Now there's always rhetoric around social security is going to run out or Medicare and it will, and it won't, right? If they print all the money, then it'll just go not quite as far. You'll get the, you might get the numeric denomination that you're owed, but you won't actually get the, the goods and services that, that that money would have bought. Maybe it'll go that way, but either way, just forget about the specifics and I don't know exactly how it would play out, but just in general, More is owed. There are claims, greater claims on the world's wealth than the world can deliver. So some people are going to take a haircut. And usually it is not the rich people that take the biggest haircut, right? Usually it's the people with the least power who end up taking the haircut. But if you are among the global leadership, you're either a politician or you're an oligarch that funds politicians, or you run an NGO or, you know, all of the above, you've worked in different parts of this machine that is, you know, basically in charge of the decision making, the large decision making of the world, you know basically that you cannot deliver what is owed. You are going to default on your obligations. Probably you may blame somebody else or you may think it's not your fault or you may think that it's for the greater good or whatever thing you justify. But whatever you tell yourself, like a drug addict gambler that you know has to embezzle money from his job to keep going, Uh, whatever he tells himself the necessity is and the the dire reason is, the fact is that you cannot pay back what you have promised to pay back. You are exceeding, your your promises exceed your capacity to make good on them. And that is a problem because in the end, it's fuck you, pay me. If somebody owes you money, they can come up with a sob story, but the reality is like everybody has problems and especially rich, powerful people, they've got to be good for it. So they can't very well come out and say, look, we fucked it up, right? Like we went to war in Iraq and we spent $6 trillion and enriched arms manufacturers and military contractors and there was nothing to show and half a million people died and we spent your money and borrowed that money to get that to occupy Afghanistan. We did that. We gave all this money to Ukraine. We gave all this money to Pfizer and mandated the shots. And now people are having side effects and the COVID is not gone. COVID is still here and they've given money to the, the shots were free, right? They were free, but they weren't free. They were free <laughs> for the person taking them, but they're, they're on the, at the taxpayer's foot in the tab. So all that money is being paid to those corporations and the executives and the shareholders and the investors. So all of this money that they paid to Boeing, to bail them out after they shut down the economy with COVID, and Boeing was doing share buybacks rather than investing in better planes. All of this stuff caused a default. They owe more than they are good for. And they can't just come out and say that because you're going to have French Revolution style. I mean, when you, when you tell the bookie that you're not good for the money you owe, you get your leg broken at best. The second time, it might be worse than that. And they're coming out and saying it. And there was a French Revolution where they, they went to the guillotine. And they can't well have that. They can't come out and say, look, we spent this money on things like Iraq to enrich our investors and friends and ourselves. And and now the money's gone and we can't pay for it. So what are they going to do? Well, they can print money. They can always print more money. But the problem is you can print money, but if you print money to pay for fuel, the price of fuel goes up. So you can't really (laughs) print your way out of a a fuel shortage because you're just going to drive the price up. And eventually you have the same amount of productive capacity and savings with which to pay for the fuel And there's a finite amount of fuel. You can't print fuel, right? You can't print fuel. You can't print food. You got to grow food. You've got to get fuel out of the ground, fossil fuels, or you've got to come up with technologies to better extract fuels. And they really haven't done that. The solar and the wind aren't delivering and they're expensive to produce. So in Europe, Germany, they're bracing for a very expensive winter. Fuel is going to be so expensive that it's not going to be profitable to manufacture things. And then people will get laid off. And this is a vicious cycle that, that is coming up in Europe. And the U.S. probably isn't quite as bad as Europe, but there's other problems brewing in the U.S. So what are they going to do? You know, they don't, they don't have the goods. They don't have basically the, you know, what is the wealth of an economy? It's like the raw materials, the food, the technology, the fuel, the energy, energy and technology is, and is productive capacity and wealth. You don't have any wealth if you don't have power to your house, if you don't have running water. These things are foundational. Some of the stuff is finite, like energy and, and costs money to produce. And so instead of coming clean, which I understand why they don't at this point, they fucked it up so badly. They don't want it to, it's like a, again, like a gambler who's embezzled from the company. He doesn't want to come clean. He's going to go to jail. So what's, what's something that they're doing? Well, they're saying, well, climate change, energy is is bad. They're going to say energy is bad. Using energy, the energy that's reliable, the fossil fuels is bad. And it's going to destroy the planet. We're all going to die. So we all have to cut back and ration your energy for the sake of the climate. So instead of just admitting they can't pay for this or they fucked it up, they're going to demonize it as as something bad. So that's a strategy to convince people to either voluntarily not use it, which is impossible beyond a certain point, because even the wokest, greenest Twitter warriors are on Twitter. They're online. They have to power up their computers and they're going to get cold in the winter. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, they can print money and they can also basically print industrial food, like you know cereals and boxes of cereal. They can make infinite of those almost. It, it really costs almost nothing. Although the, the fertilizer may be an issue to grow the, the crops, the monocrops that they use. But basically that stuff is easy to produce. The meat is more expensive, takes more care. So they're demonizing meat, they're demonizing energy. And this is a way to get everybody to lower their standard of living. If you're eating... You know industrial grains, processed grains, which are not good for you, instead of fresh grass-fed pasture-raised meat, which is very healthy for you, I mean, you've basically lowered your standard of living. You've lowered the quality of nutrients in your body. You've lowered the amount of energy that's available for use. So one way is to inflate by printing money. But another way to inflate uh, without people noticing is to keep the food costs roughly the same, but to lower the quality of the food. You know, the obvious way is to say, you know, to shrink the size of the candy bar or whatever. But even to get you to eat a candy bar rather than you know a, a piece of wild salmon is, is itself lowering the quality of life, lowering the quality of food that you're eating. So I was reading the safety and stuff, and I haven't read his book, The Fiat Standard. I had The Bitcoin Standard. I, I'm starting to find it like more literally persuasive because usually these bombastic guys who just make these sweeping statements, I'm like, well, he's going to get attention from that. But is that really true? But I do think it's true that whether or not there is a catastrophic aspect to climate change. And again, I don't see evidence of it, but I could be wrong. I don't, there's hidden things that I'm not aware of, perhaps. It also seems like it's very convenient to make people worry about their energy consumption and their meat consumption right when they need everybody to do, consume less because there's less to go around for everybody because they fucking squandered the collective wealth of their societies through things like the Iraq war and the bailouts and the giveaways to Pfizer and Ukraine and all these extremely useless money laundering schemes that they've that they've developed. So anyway, I just figured I would mention that. Might write something on that. Although there's a lot of people doing work on that. Another concept I was thinking of, I don't know if I want to call it variance or varying your, your tolerance. There's a guy I follow on Twitter. He's like 62. He's super jacked. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, the guy's got like an eight pack. I mean, he's so jacked. He's 62 years old. And he was writing about how aging is reduction of variance. So, you know, when you're young, you can be like sitting around eating Doritos and then get up and run hundred yards with your friend to go do something without pulling a muscle or throwing up or whatever. You just, you can, you can you know, sleep for, you know, all day and then sprint with, with little notice in between. As you get older, you got to warm up more. Maybe you don't really sprint. You kind of jog a little bit. Maybe you go easy on how heavy of a, of a, Moving a table, you might have a few people help you, all these things, as you get older, your variance, your tolerance for variance uh, decreases. And as you get really old, and when you die, it's like you cannot really walk anymore. And you, you know, break your hip. And then those people, they they barely get around, and then they they end up dying soon because their their variance gets narrower and narrower. Their tolerance for extremes gets narrower, extreme heat, extreme cold. So a way that he combats that or suggests to do it is to Get in freezing water, get in a sauna, sprint at the track. You know, have a lot of variance in your experience and push it to have variance, and then you will be able to tolerate a lot of different states and tolerate extremes. And then you're basically it's the opposite of aging. You know, lack of tolerance to extremes is a probably a good description of aging. And I started thinking about that because a few years back there was a real cold snap in the Midwest in. Minnesota, like northern Minnesota. And I think it got down to like 60 below or something crazy. But they said, like, a silver lining was there were some like infestations of beetles, bark beetles, I think, in some of the trees there. And it got so cold that the trees could tolerate the cold, but the beetles couldn't and they died off. And so the cold was actually really good for the trees. Again, an extreme condition helped the tree shed this parasite. And, you know, your body does it too with fevers. You know, if you have a, a bug, you'll heat up to make the conditions for the the bug or parasite intolerable and it dies. You don't die unless you go too far. Sometimes you do, but you know, for the most part, the point of the fever isn't to kill you. It's to kill off the bug and then get back down to normal. And so, you know, or another example of this is if somebody were to jump on the hood of your car, like an assailant, uh, you wouldn't want to just drive, you know, 30 miles an hour, calmly, in a straight line. You'd want to swerve harshly left to right. You want to brake. you want to do everything to shake this parasite off your car. It's the same principle, right? The more extreme, the more variants you have, the less comfortable a parasite has riding with you. And that's part of the reason to tolerate extremes because the more you can handle, the less the less hospitable you are to unwanted invaders. And I was thinking about that from the just the point of like ideology. The more, cons- I don't want to say consistent, but the more, sort of loyal you are to a creed or an ideology or a, a political party, the more the grifters and charlatans can exploit you because you're just going to vote for them no matter what. You're going to say, well, that, these are the good guys. So if, if Joe Biden's, if I'm a Democrat and Joe Biden's doing it, it must be the good guy. The more you hew to a, a narrow ideology, the more you can be exploited by parasites and charlatans. And the more you're willing to be like, you know, I don't, I don't hew to any of this stuff. I just try to find what's true. And the more you're willing to tolerate completely different views and entertain them, give yourself sort of the extreme variance in terms of what you're willing to entertain, thought experiments, trying to figure out what's true. It's very hard for grifters to come in and say, hey, I'm running on this ticket. So you'll vote for me because you'll be like, fuck, no, I'm not going to vote for you. You're a scumbag charlatan. I don't care what team you're on. So I don't know. I think there's some overlap in that. I was exploring that idea. What else? Oh, so I read, I read a column by somebody who was saying that basically the argument was it's very hard to be knowledgeable in all areas, right? You can be really expert in in your area or be a hobbyist in a couple areas where you really delve deeply into it, but it's very hard to be super knowledgeable in a lot of different areas, right? Like I'm not going to become a climate expert, for example, I'm not going to become experts in stock trading, for example. So if you're a good judge of who to trust, that's a huge skill, he argues, because then you can just trust the right people and then just believe them in areas where you lack expertise. And then obviously in areas where you have expertise, you can trust yourself and you can trade on your expertise with other people. And this is an efficient way to do it. And I understand that argument, but I, I have to disagree with it. I think it's a, a bad argument. I think that the, this COVID fiasco is basically due to that heuristic, which is people saying, "Well, these other smart people who know more about this than me are doing this, so I'll do it. I'll take the vaccine because so and so is really smart, and you know he, he's read up on a lot of stuff. And if he's taking it, or my doctor's taking it, then I'm going to take it. And then, but the problem is that doctor may also be looking to another doctor for the same reason. And that doctor may be looking to another doctor and so on and so forth. And it just takes a few people well-placed with the right incentives to go along with something. And then everybody follows suit thinking that that's the trusted expert. And now maybe those people were trustworthy in the past too. It's just that the incentives changed and it wasn't like there was some diabolical conspiracy. It's just that, you know, they just, it was a lot easier to believe. They had a huge incentive to believe that all the stuff was on the level professionally and socially. And so even though maybe like under the radar, they, they were super skeptical, they would have seen something right away that was a little weird. Why are we trusting this? Has this been tested? Is How can there be long-term testing? Don't these things take longer to test? But they just trusted other people. And as soon as a couple of people were on board, the rest of the dominoes fell. And I think you're really in danger of groupthink. And, you know, but the alternative, you can't just trust nobody, but it's kind of like, I think it's just better to sit it out, right? Like, and just trusting some other guy because he says so, I think is is stupid. And and I I feel like you know, with investing or, or trading stocks, like I know that I would lose money if I were you know day trading stocks. Like, I am not willing to invest in that. I'm not willing to take tips from other experts. I'm just going to sit it out and invest my funds in the couple things that I have some knowledge about but i think the more important thing is not to trust other people their conclusions i think you should hear their arguments and listen to what they have to say and the evidence they have to offer absolutely but i would not trust their conclusions and if their arguments are not persuasive or you don't really know because you don't even have the expertise to evaluate it properly sit it out just don't invest in that asset class if you don't really get it don't just do what the guy on tv who seems smart says or that's probably even really stupid. I think uh, that's a little straw man. I don't think they would say that. I would say, your trusted friend who tells you this asset class is good, that to me means go look into it myself. It doesn't mean do what he says, take his advice. Even though it can work, you know, if you're good at handicapping the handicapper, so to speak, it's going to be disastrously wrong, like we saw in COVID when, when there's groupthink and they get it wrong in mass. And if you want to be a great investor, you want to be like Warren Buffett, don't buy what Warren Buffett is buying research it deeply from first principles and form your own thesis about it and watch it. That's what he would do, right? If you want to imitate him, do the work yourself, become an expert yourself. He's not taking tips from someone else. Taking tips from him is not imitating him. Taking tips from him is what he would not do. So I I just reject that heuristic. I think handicapping the handicappers is, it's sort of short-term can work, but long-term it portends grave errors. Okay. Here's another thing. So I talked to a a friend of mine and she was like, I I guess she's like in between careers and she was feeling like not sure what her next move was. And, and she, she said, you know, I'm feeling a little bit out of touch with myself. You know, I, I just don't feel like I'm in touch with what I really want. I said, well, you know, it sounds like if you know that you're out of touch with yourself, that itself is kind of being in touch, right? I mean, in a way, you know, the people who are truly out of touch, the people who are truly you know, it's like an insane person does not know they're insane. If you're like, Hey, I think I'm losing my mind. Well, you haven't totally lost it yet because you are aware that something's not right. And it seemed like she was aware that she felt a little disconnected from her, you know, her sense of purpose and that itself, that awareness of disconnection was itself a connection. And I just was saying, well, you know, you might want to like explore that feeling of disconnection. Like what, what does it feel like? Like what, how is it uh, manifesting itself? And through that tether to something that was real and connected maybe you can follow that thread to something where you where you you get some uh, direction and and she seemed you know to to be interested in that idea and we started talking and i could then tell pretty quickly that that she was interested in it not because she wanted to really get connected with her purpose but because she thought if she got more in touch with herself she could get a good job that can make a lot of money and give her a lot of status and shut some people up who, I guess, you know, way back when, whenever, dissed her, not believed in her, whatever it is that's driving her mission to do this. And it reminded me of Tony Soprano and Sopranos when he goes to therapy, right? And and he goes to, uh, I forget her name, the uh, Dr. Malfi or something. And he goes to Dr. Malfi, I'd probably butcher it. And she's saying, well, you know, you have all this, these issues and all this stuff. And, and he's just basically like, look, tell me, how to deal with this anxiety or whatever it is so I can kill my enemies. He's like, I'm here to deal with this problem I have so I can defeat my enemies. Like he didn't give a shit about finding out what was true about him. He was just there to, basically his core life's purpose to defeat his enemies was not that, he's not going to give that up. So any therapy for him was just to resolve the impediment to his mission. And I felt like she was like the same, like she just wants this very successful, prestigious career, which she's done some prestigious things in the past. And so like getting in touch is just a means to that end. It's not like, because she really wants to find out that that's not what she's about. And that was something that she was driven to by external factors and it's not really her. She didn't give a shit. She just wanted to do that. But it got me thinking like, and you know, that's not me. I mean, I probably have a mission that I'm not entirely aware of and whatever else. But that like, if you want to have a status and a good job and you know, I like money too, so don't get me wrong, but not for the status so much as for the freedom. But if you want status and you care about status, that is a very different thing than caring about freedom and what's true. And, and, and so I started thinking like a lot of people, like they don't give a shit that the, whether the virus leaked from the lab or who was funding it or how this whole disaster happened or whether the vaccine has killed X amount of people or injured a lot of people through side effects or whether it works or how they lie demanded it. They just don't give a shit about that because they don't care about what's true and accountability and justice. They care about status. And cleverly, powers that be set up, at least in uh, liberal, educated, successful circles, they set it up so that questioning these things will actually diminish your status quite quickly. And I found that out on Twitter. I was questioning things like mask wearing, outdoor mask wearing, and I got a Twitter mob come after me. They felt because I said that, I was of low enough status that they could attack me freely, that that was something that they uh, were empowered to do. So I found out quickly that they were very clever. If you question these things and want accountability or wondering what the fuck is going on, why I have to wear a diaper on my face or why I can't go outside nice sunny day at my own whim and I've got to keep walking through the park and not sit still, The police ask you to keep moving. If you ask why that's happening, it's bad for your status. So if you're foremost concerned about status and you're in these educated circles, then you are going to not ask about that stuff and you're going to be very focused on how you can retain status and all these questions are not even going to be important to you. Because I think, how can you be incurious about how there's this much excess death since the rollout, you know, basically April of 21, there's been a ridiculous amount of excess death in almost every country in the world. And it's not explained by COVID, non-COVID excess death. And how could you not be curious about that? You might not come to the conclusion that it's definitely from the vaccine, but how could you not be curious about that? How, how could it not be like, you know, there's like more than a 9-11 a week in excess deaths in the US, you're incurious about that? That's not, uh, that's not something that you think needs a little attention or some thought. But no, because you question that you lose status and you're about status and you're on this mission to be more whatever, you know, deemed uh, more successful or credible in the eyes of your peers. And that has been marked off limits, at least for now. I don't think it's gonna necessarily stay that way, but for now, you know, you're not supposed to question it. And it's changing already. Already people are like, what the fuck? So I'd be like, how can people just be incurious about these fundamental things? The whole world got turned upside down. You're not curious. How that happened? No, they made it a negative status to be curious. And since so many people are driven by status, this deep drive, like Tony Soprano to get his enemies back, they don't have time for truth. They don't have any interest in what's true. And there's a couple kinds of people, right? There's kinds of people who believe that what's true is the thing you should believe. And there's other people that think, and, and they might not admit this or even be self-aware of this, but that what you should think is whatever you need to think in order to get along socially and professionally. If I believe that the election was stolen in 2020, I'm going to have a hard time getting along professionally with educated colleagues in corporate media world. I'm going to have a lot of problems if I truly believe that the election was stolen because I can't express myself. I'm going to be uncomfortable when this topic comes up. I'm going to be, and if I do express myself, it's going to be a big problem for me. So if I were to believe that, that would be a big problem. And so do I believe that based on evidence and facts and look into it, or do I not even look into it? And I'm just like, it's absurd to think that was stolen. That's ridiculous. That's conspiracy theory. I'm going to believe the latter. Of course I am. And I'm going to believe who, you know, that it's, it, it could be a lab leak. It could have been from the market. We don't know. And that's not what's important. And they're doing their best. And whatever you have to believe. I wrote that, that column on chrysalis.com about what I think the, the normies think. You know, just how the normal person thinks. And I think they mostly just think whatever it is that is in the in circulation that they feel they need to think in order to get along socially and professionally. And they just believe what they have to believe. And if you show them evidence, that's like, dude, this makes absolutely no sense. Like they, they said, if you took the vaccine, you wouldn't get this virus. And now people have gotten it three, four times and they're quad vax and boosted and they got masks on. Like, like, what the hell? They'll just be like, they never said that. They never said that. But there's evidence. They actually said it. Well, they didn't know. And science, the, the, you know, the, the facts on the ground change and science changes, but they were mandating it. They acted like it was settled. They said the science was settled. You have to take this. That's the only way to stop the spread, to get out of the pan, They actually said it. It was a pandemic of the unvaccinated. It was a winter of death for the, the unvaccinated. You know, they, they didn't say, oh, well, you know, we're not sure. The science isn't settled. So how do you, you confront them with that? They just don't care. They're not interested. It's done. It's done. They believe what they needed to believe at the time. And they just kind of paper over that in their mind in a way that's, ah, who cares about old conspiracy theories? Who cares about... it? just dismissed in this big bundle of who cares about that. That's just nonsense. Why are we letting, get, letting it? Everybody knows that already. We've moved on from that. They don't care. They just don't care. They just want to get their status and they can't go into it. If they go into that, they go into... What the fuck, how crazy their beliefs are, how contradictory. The cognitive dissonance is going to be very painful and they're going to go back. But if they can get through the cognitive dissonance, they're going to come out the other side with the red pill and they're going to be fucked because then they're going to look at all their family and colleagues and people they hang out with or many of them. And it's like, fuck, these people are still in this and I'm out and now we've got a problem socially and professionally. And you just don't want that. You feel powerless, you can't do anything about it anyway. So why fucking... yourself in that hell where now you're at odds with the beliefs of your entire tribe so i think a lot of people feel that way i am a person of faith not specific religious faith but i have a deep faith that believing what is true irrespective of whether it's short-term helpful is always the best it's always the best thing to, to try to find out it doesn't matter if you're the only one you end up being a heretic for believing it Maybe you, sometimes the majority's right. Not usually, but there are times when the majority's right, that's fine too. It's okay to believe what everyone believes so long as it's true. It's just what's true supersedes what's popular, what's good for you to believe in the short term. I believe, see, people think there's a conflict and, and they may not even articulate this to themselves, but they inherently think there's a conflict between believing what's true and finding out or just going along with you know, the religion du jour, the tribal uh, edicts. And so long as there's a conflict, they will often choose to do the thing that's, that's better for them. Everyone wants to have a happier, better professional and social life, but they don't have faith that no matter how much better it is for you in the short term or how much it appears to be better, it is always worse to believe the incorrect thing, the factually untrue thing. I think some people go so far as to say there is nothing factually true, that what people believe they make their own truth. I don't believe that. I believe there's actual physics facts Jump out a window. It doesn't matter if everyone believes that gravity doesn't exist, you are going to die. Physics exists, gravity exists, and they're just factual truths that exist. And it is very important, this is my faith. It's actually not a, it's not a, I think this is a matter of faith, that getting in touch with reality is more important and more beneficial to your overall organism, your soul, whatever you want to call it in the long term. I'll give you another tenet of faith that I have which is that it is never right to do a wrong. It is never okay to, oh, I'm going to mistreat this person because it's for the greater good. Better to um, kill this one person so that 10 people's lives are saved. It is never right to do a wrong. It is not a balancing scale of harms and helps. It's not a a cost-benefit balancing scale. It's not a spreadsheet. You don't know what will happen in the second, third, fourth order effects. It is not mathematically modelable. In a complex system, we cannot get into all the permutations. Maybe those numbers I talked about in those other podcasts, like tree three and Graham's number, start to get into the amount of permutations. And if we could use that somehow, maybe we could model it. I doubt it. In a complex system, we do not have the capacity. You can't do tree three because there's not enough atoms in the universe. There's not enough, it's not even (laughs) atoms in the universe. That's a joke. There's not enough, if each, atom was its own universe, there wouldn't be enough atoms in the universe, in those universes collectively, it wouldn't even be close. Point is, in a complex system, you cannot model this stuff out. So if I kill somebody and say, what is for the greater good? Well, what does that do that I'm allowed to kill somebody and have a justification for that suddenly for the greater good and, 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 and saving people? And now I'm important in the future. I know I'm going to save humanity so I can kill all these other people. That's what every Hitler type figure believes, right? I'm killing these people, but I'm doing it for the greater good of the country, the glory of this. Every monstrosity starts out with, I have a right to do a wrong. You do not have a right to do a wrong. You do not have a right to mistreat somebody, to benefit somebody else. You do not have a right to do knowing wrong because it's good, because it's for the right team. Oh, I'll do this horrible thing because it helps my team win, my political team, and the other political teams worse, or I'll condone terrible behavior by my political team because it's, you know, because it's for the greater good. I have faith that that is always wrong. Do not do wrong. Simply, don't do it. If you know something's wrong, don't do it. Don't justify it. Fuck off, right? Fuck off with your, this is for the greater good. I'm not buying it and it's self-serving and you don't know and you can't model out all the effects. Second, third, fourth. Oh, we're all gonna sit here and do all these bad things because it's for the greater good. That, that's basically what happens, right? People lie, cheat, steal, and they justify it to themselves. They lie about people. So no, absolutely not. All right, a couple other things. I'm going to also write about this. I wrote about this how uh, I have an infallible cure for the hiccups. You got to hold your breath 30 seconds to a minute, however long it takes for the last maybe five or 10 seconds to be pretty uncomfortable. Hiccups go away. Works every time if you're willing to face the pain. Some people don't believe me, so they don't try. Some people do it for like 20 seconds, but as soon as it gets painful, they give up. It's got to be a little painful, always goes away. It's a cure for the hiccups. Everybody gets them. And I have a universal cure. Now, hiccups aren't that important. They'll probably go away on their own. They don't cause any real damage. But what if there were other things like that that if you just stop breathing for a minute, it cures this, you stop eating. Now we talked about autophagy in the last podcast. But what if autophagy eats cancer? You know, this guy, Herbert Shelton, that I read, and I put a put it a quote from him in the uh, in my post, basically argues that the body looks for the least important tissues when it's starving. You know, it's not going to go for like the organs and the muscles. It's going to go for the fat. It's going to go for things like tumors and cysts, which are not essential to the body and eat them. Now, I don't know to the extent that's true. It sounds plausible to me. I don't know that it's true in every case. So I don't want to say this is definitely true. But what if a lot of these ailments, I know diabetes, I mean, I've seen a lot of research on diabetes being reversed just from fasting, but things even like cancer before a certain stage, I'm sure there's a stage beyond which fasting is not going to save you. But what if there's a early stage cancer or preventative where there's a cure, nobody wants to do it, no one wants to fast 16, 17 days because it's painful and they don't believe it will work in any event. Uh, and they say, well, if this would work, come on, they would know about it. This would be on the front page of the New York Times. No, it wouldn't. You know how much money is in cancer research, cancer cures, cancer therapy, cancer treatment? The huge industry, gigantic. It, it, they don't want to know. If it happened to be true that fasting would preclude you getting some cancers or reverse early stage cancers. They don't want, they're not going to be looking into that. All the the expensive randomized controlled double blind trials, those things, they need big funding. And who's funding that? They're not funding that so they can say, Hey, all these medicines that you're taking, you don't need them. Just, just stop eating for two weeks at a time each year. But I just thought about it because I've I've been with people with the hiccups who want to get rid of them, but they're unwilling, they either don't believe me, or they don't want to suffer the five, 10 seconds of discomfort that you need to get through to hold your breath, to get rid of them. What if it's just suffering two weeks, three weeks without food discomfort, which is uncomfortable. I've done a week, it gets easier, deeper in, but you know, it's, it's it's not fun not having food, but that, that is the cure. What if that were the cure to a whole bunch of diseases and ailments, and it's right there and it's free, uh, it's more than free. You pay yourself by not spending money on food. And yet people just either, they don't want to suffer through it or they don't believe it because the medical system hasn't validated it, but we know why they wouldn't validate it. Anyway, it just occurred to me. And the other thing that occurred to me, which I might write about, is let's just say, for the sake of argument, that that's true. And that autophagy, you eat tumors and you eat the sort of disease cells and senescent cells and clean them out, do a cleaning. And basically, the the reason that this happens is because when when your body doesn't get food from outside, calories, getting food from inside, your fat and your cells, and it becomes very efficient. It doesn't want to feed cells that are old. It doesn't want to feed cells that are diseased. It wants to feed the healthy essential cells. It's just very smart you know, it's why you exist. It's why we survived. It's why you're alive evolution. There's an enormous intelligence of the body of how it goes about choosing, you know, what to keep and what to get rid of. And I was thinking about meditation in that context. It's just efficiency fasting, right? It just means that you're going to be more efficient. You're not digesting. So that 10% or 20% or whatever the percentage of energy that you would use for that gets redirected toward cleaning and repair, And you think, well, that's not that much energy. I'm not like, you know, running laps and stuff. That would be more energy savings than just not digesting. But maybe that digestion does take some energy. You need to make enzymes and and process all this food and break it down and then assimilate it. What if that 10% or 20, whatever the number is, that little bit of extra energy toward cleaning and repair is all the difference that you're doing it at 10 times the speed that you truly repair things before they start to get damaged again. And then I started thinking about, it, as I said, in context of meditation, you're not getting enlightened. You're not doing anything special. You're not a spiritual person because you meditate. You're sitting there, and you're letting the thoughts go, and you're just aware of yourself. And so, instead of being distracted with all this energy and electrochemical en- thoughts, are electrochemical energy. Instead of burning this electrochemical energy onto emotionally attached thoughts, you're not. You're letting that dissipate. And maybe in meditation, the mind eats trauma, eats neuroses. It just Processes it because it's just you're just aware of the feelings and your gut and all the things that drive the escapist thoughts that you have. I mean, your thoughts, even if they're stress, they're worry, if they're regrets, they're basically a distraction from the feelings in your body. You have like your actual feelings and emotions and core bodily and emotional experience, and then you abstract that into thoughts and ideas and dissipate that energy so that maybe it's more tolerable and less visceral, less painful. But if you free up that energy to just focus on it, and I don't mean focus like stare at a flame or something, I mean just like a loose, non, you know, an unbridled attention, just like an open attention to what's going on. Maybe you're just eating trauma the way fasting might eat tumors or eat cysts or eat diseased cells. You're eating diseased, you're eating damaged emotions. You're eating damaged thoughts. And so really meditation, again, not the spiritual bullshit. I mean, just like, it's just an efficiency thing wherein you process what you need to process and the body has a lot of intelligence. I mean, it's a bodily phenomenon more than a spiritual one. It's a, uh, okay, I'm not, I'm not here with these thoughts generating all this excess energy and I'm just in my whole body. And all of a sudden it's eating all the emotions, eating all the trauma. Anyway, just a thought that it was uh, maybe there's an allegory between the two. All right, that's it. That's maybe an hour. So longer than I wanted to go. I'm going to Spain tomorrow. As I said, And probably podcast when I get home at some point. Till next time.